Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. Please turn to chapter 12. We recently concluded a series of sermons in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Uh, There will be a few weeks here of what we might call topical messages. That is messages where we might take out a certain text of Scripture apart from any sermon series. We'll focus on a particular issue in the Scriptures. Very soon we'll be back in a new series of sermons. But last week, this week, next couple of weeks, be standalone sermons from various texts of the Scriptures. This morning we'll be in Mark chapter 12. At least we'll begin there. Let's read together verses 28. Through 31. Mark 12, verse 28. Follow along as I read. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that, he answered them well, asked him, that is Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. A second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let's pray once more together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that by the help of your life-giving spirit, you would come and be our teacher this morning. We pray that you would open up the word to us. We pray that you would seal it upon our hearts. We pray that you would expose our sins, our false motives, the ways in which we may be failing you even now. Show us the path of righteousness and show us how to live before your face and faithfulness and holiness and in uprightness. Show us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Show us what it means to follow the commands that he has left for us. Help us to be faithful in our witness to the world, our witness to our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two great commandments. Clearly the most important is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then there's a second. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. These two commandments, love for God, love for neighbor, are often called the two great commandments, and rightly so. Jesus gives to them this place of prominence among the commandments and this place of priority among the community of faith, among his disciples, among the church. There is no command that rises higher in Jesus' mind than these two. Love for God and love for our neighbors. It is the second great commandment that I'd like us to consider this morning. The second of the two. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What we learn in Mark 12, 31, and other texts that we will see this morning is that love for neighbor is to be one of the hallmarks of Christian discipleship and ethics. This is to be a defining trait of the Lord's people, that we love our neighbors as ourselves. If you're a Christian, surely you're familiar with the command. Even if you're not, you're probably familiar with the command. Our culture is generally familiar with this command. Now, people will sometimes confuse this command with what is known as the golden rule, Very similar idea, Uh, that's contained in Matthew 7, verse 12. The golden rule is that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And you can see that sort of mirrored somewhat in the second great commandment, which is we should love our neighbors as ourselves. Very similar. This morning I want to ask the question, how should we understand this commandment from our Lord and what place should it have in the Christian life? How should we understand this commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? What place should it have in the Christian life? Now, before we begin to answer that question, I'll tell you of two competing concerns that are in my mind as we come to consider this issue of loving our neighbors 
as ourselves. And these are two burdens that, in part, are the reason I've turned our attention to this subject this morning. The first burden, the first concern is this. Uh, Many of you may be aware of the current trend in many churches and in the wider evangelical world that tends to see all kinds of things as falling under the purview of the second great commandment. Uh, A trend that I think represents a kind of distortion or abuse of this command. Now, in our context, we are being told that love of neighbor requires that we support particular candidates and causes in the political arena, uh, that we advocate for what some may call social justice, uh, that we embrace open borders, that we become code-affirming toward our LGBTQ neighbors, that we work to raise the minimum wage and expand unemployment benefits, that we get our vaccines and that we recycle, and that we all studiously work on shrinking our carbon footprint, all in the name of environmental stewardship. These and other such things were told are all part of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, this is the clear path that loving neighbor would take if we were only faithful to the command. Of course, most often, these supposed entailments of the second great commandment are nothing more than a reflection of someone's particular politics, personal preferences in some cases, or sometimes even their own legalistic standards. It seems love for neighbor in our current climate is an infinitely elastic command. If you have something you wish others to do, try to fit it under the umbrella of the second great commandment, and then you can bind their consciences forthwith. This represents, I think, a kind of abuse of these words from our Lord in a subtle form of spiritual manipulation that we are often subject to. But there's a second concern I have. And that is a kind of conservative overreaction to my first concern. And I notice this among conservative evangelicals of our stripe, particularly among those in the Reformed tradition, uh, that they will sometimes become very nervous when people start talking about love for neighbor. Their solution to the ways in which progressive evangelicals abuse this command seems to be not to talk about this command at all. A fixation on love for neighbor is a slippery slope to a social gospel and to theological liberalism, they will say. It's only those wokey social justice people that want to talk about loving neighbor. Or maybe we're willing to talk about this command. But all of our exegetical and hermeneutical sweat goes into domesticating the command. We become skilled at limiting the entailments of this command and domesticating its applications to us At the end of the day, it doesn't actually require all that much of us. You see the concern. All of this is an effort to problematize the command and vacate it of its clear meaning. But friends, we must never forget that this command does mean something. And it means something huge. And it means something wonderful. And it does impose entailments upon us. Tremendous entailments. Blessed entailments. And we should eagerly investigate what those entailments are, and that's what I would like us to do this morning. So here's what I would like us to do. I'd like us to look at the five major passages that present this command to us. And from each passage, I'd like to draw a principle or an observation. So my main headings will track with each passage we look at. They're all very short. They all contain this command. And looking at these passages this week, it occurred to me that each one provides a a different angle or an extra layer of uh, force and power behind the command that is given. So five passages, five conclusions we'll draw from each one, and then we'll consider some implications for us. So first of all, turn to Leviticus 19 for my first point. Leviticus chapter 19. One of the first presentations of this command that we have in Scripture. Leviticus chapter 19, and we'll look at verse 17 and 18 together. In Leviticus 19, God, through Moses, is giving various laws to his people. In this chapter, Leviticus 19, God has been giving particular laws related to how the Israelites were to behave in the covenant community and in the wider world, and how their love of neighbor was to come to expression in various ways. After highlighting these ways in which God's law should be kept in reference to one's neighbor, we have verse 17 and 18. Follow along as I read. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. 
You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This text plainly calls Israelites to love their neighbors, particularly their brethren within the covenant community. And their love for their neighbors, the sons of their own people, is to be regulated by how they wish themselves to be loved. Love your neighbor as yourself, as you yourself uh, would want to be loved, or as you might love your own person and care for your own person. Now one might quickly say, well look, this love for neighbor clearly is to be extended only for neighbors within the covenant community. It's only the sons of your people. It's only fellow Israelites. But that assumption is demolished by what Moses writes just a few verses later. Look at verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So both in the covenant community and among those outside the covenant community, God's people under the Old Testament were commanded to love their neighbors as themselves. So here's the simple point, my first heading, that I want to draw a basic conclusion from this passage. Number one, Jesus' command to love neighbor is not novel, but is contained in the Old Testament. That's the only point I want to establish by turning us to Leviticus 19. Jesus' command, when he gave us that command, love your neighbor as yourself, it's not a novel command. He wasn't giving them something new. It is a command contained in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus is essentially quoting this passage when he makes those famous statements regarding love for a neighbor. And I'll just say at this point, this should utterly break down the facile and unfounded paradigm that says that Old Testament ethics focused on duty and legalism as the motivation for obedience, and that the New Testament focuses on love as the proper motivation for obedience. Or to put it even more baldly, some will suggest Old Testament ethics focus on law, New Testament ethics focus on love. That won't work in light of this passage. But love has always been the motivating center for obedience, both under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Love for God and love for neighbor were always meant to regulate and condition the obedience of the people of God. The Scriptures are clear in their witness, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that love for neighbor, both inside and outside the community of faith, ought always to mark the people of God. That's the first point. Now turn to Romans chapter 13 for our second major heading. Romans chapter 13. I'm going out of order here. The next three passages we'll look at are all in the Gospels. I want us to get the material before Jesus and after Jesus first. Romans 13, of course, written by the Apostle Paul. Paul is going to cite the command to love neighbor. He does it in a particular context. Uh, this is just a Christianity 101 tip. Very good to be familiar with all of the Bible. Romans 13 is one of those passages you should thoroughly study. Uh, Romans 13 is where we're given uh, instruction on how to relate to the governing authorities. Uh, how we're to relate to those who the Lord and His providence have set over us, the magistrate or the state. And it's in that context that we have these verses that I'm about to read from Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul is concerned with how these Christians live before the state and in the wider society. And so he says, Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Here's the second point, simple observation from this passage. Here's the second major heading. The command to love one's neighbor both summarizes and fulfills all the law's requirements concerning our duty to our fellow human beings. I'll say that again. The command to love one's neighbor both summarizes and fulfills all the law's requirements concerning our duty to our fellow human beings. Notice the verbs I use. These verbs are in the passage itself in Romans 13. Summarizes and fulfills. Summarizes and fulfills. It doesn't replace them. You see that? So, so Paul is not saying, you don't need to worry about not murdering anymore. Or not coveting, or not stealing, just focus on love. 
No, he's saying the command to love your neighbor as yourself, in a sense, sort of summarizes it all. If forced to give a summary, a general principle, catch-all kind of summary command that would capture the essence of all the moral imperatives with respect to how we should live before our fellow human beings, I cannot do better than say you should love your neighbor as yourself. The implication is not don't worry about murdering or committing adultery. No, he's saying these commands are summarized in the command to love one's neighbor, and they find their fulfillment in the command, the fulfilling of loving one's neighbor. Which means, friends, in order to successfully love your neighbor, you must be ready to fulfill and satisfy all these commands in reference to them. Because the course of love, excuse me, because the course love takes is shaped by the law of God. I'll say that again. The course love takes is shaped by the law of God. You love your neighbor, you won't kill him. You love your neighbor, you won't commit adultery with him or with his spouse. You love your neighbor, you won't steal, you won't covet. You see how this goes. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You fulfill the law with respect to your neighbor. Uh, love directs the course, excuse me, the law directs the course that our love should take. There's an old, I think it's a Puritan saying, that the law is love's eyes. Without the law, love is blind. What does it mean to love somebody? Well, the law shows us how. They're like lenses that we put on that show us how to love our neighbors. That's Paul's basic point here. The command to love one's neighbor is therefore a fit summary of the moral law of God with respect to our fellow human beings. And if you successfully fulfill this command, you will fulfill all the laws concerning your neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law after all. Paul is telling us in Romans 13 verses 8 through 10 that if I wanted to summarize the whole duty of man, with respect to his fellows, I couldn't do better than to call him to love his neighbor as himself. This is the law's summary and fulfillment. All right, the third passage. Now we're turning to the Gospels. Matthew chapter 22, 37 through 40. I know we're turning to a lot of passages. Get comfortable with it. I try not to ask you to turn to many passages typically when I preach, so hopefully you can allow me uh, this request in this sermon. Matthew 22. I'd like us to read... Verses 34 through 40. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Matthew 22, verse 36. The teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments, love for God, love for neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. So here's the third point, the simple principle I want to draw from Matthew 22. Number three, Jesus' command to love God and neighbor situates love as the principal motivation for all true obedience. Jesus' command to love God and neighbor situates love as the principal motivation for all true obedience. Where do I get that from? The question is really what is meant by that word depend in verse 40. On these two commandments, depend. The verb that is used there is literally hang. Uh, to be suspended from. From these two commandments, loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. Again, note, Jesus is not abrogating the law and the prophets. He's not saying they don't exist anymore, don't look at them anymore, don't worry about them anymore. No, he's, he's not saying they no longer apply. He's saying that all the material in the law and the prophets, the commandments, the requirements of God's holy will, they hang on these two great commandments. Love for God and love for neighbor. So I understand Jesus to be saying that love is the foundation for all that the law and the prophets revealed concerning God's will for man. Love for God and neighbor must be the motivating center for all law-keeping, for all obedience to God's will. The law and the prophets hang on these two great commandments. They have no meaning apart from them. There's no way to fulfill what the law and the prophets call us to do if you're not animated by love for God and love for your fellow creatures. 
If love for God and neighbor are not at the foundation, you've completely misunderstood and misapplied the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying there is no satisfactory obedience to the revealed will of God that does not have love for God and love for neighbor at its foundation. The moral demands of the Old Testament cannot be properly obeyed without the dynamic of love at their foundation. All the commands hang on love. Love directed to God, love directed to neighbor. Which means, brothers and sisters, love must be at the heart of all of our law-keeping. Obedience must be born of love, or it's worthless. This was something probably the Pharisees failed to understand. Applied to our relationship with our neighbors, we see that love must be the ultimate motivation in all of our conduct with our neighbors. Which means the ultimate measurement of whether or not you're fulfilling the will of God with respect to your neighbor is the degree to which your actions bespeak actual love for them. Love is the ultimate test. Love is the principal acceptable motive. Love, of course, biblically defined, not as it might be defined by our culture. Love that holds in view our neighbor's good. Love that keeps the law with reference to them. Love that does for neighbor what we would want done for ourselves. Jesus is telling us here that the motivational center for all of our obedience is love. Love for God, love for neighbor. All right, fourth passage. We're nearly done. Mark 12. Mark chapter 12, the passage I had you turn to at the start of the message. Again, there's just a different angle that we're given here. We're given more content here that enriches our view of this commandment. Mark 12, turn to verse 28. Mark 12, verses 28 through 31, as we come to our fourth point of the five. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Very simple point, very briefly. Point number four, no biblical command exceeds these two commandments in terms of greatness and significance. That's the simple point. No biblical command exceeds these two commandments in terms of greatness and significance. You might think of all the various commands we're given in Scripture. Uh, I don't think I'm going beyond this text to say that none of them is greater than these two. Uh, these are the greatest in terms of priority. Of course, love for God being the greatest, loving our neighbors as ourselves being the second. Okay, last text I'd like to ask you to turn to, Luke 10. Luke 10. So in three of the four Gospels, we are given this command to love your neighbor as yourself. Luke 10, more than any other Gospel, elaborates on what that means. What does that look like? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I'll give you the fifth point, the fifth principle. Number five, the command to love one's neighbor requires that our conduct toward our neighbors be characterized by love, kindness, and generosity. I'll say that again. The command to love one's neighbor requires that our conduct toward our neighbors be characterized by love, kindness, and generosity. You're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Man falls among robbers, bloodied and bruised. He's left for dead. The priest sees him, passes by on the other side, doesn't help him. The Levite sees him, passes by on the other side, doesn't help him. The Samaritan, what does the Samaritan do? Well, first we really notice the man, and he had compassion on the man. He intervened to help him. He noticed suffering humanity around him, and he viewed it as his responsibility to help the man, to love his neighbor. And then with kindness and generosity, he helps him and cares for him. He even offers to open an account for this man's needs at the end. And Jesus, you see how the master teacher is working here, he concludes by turning the lawyer's question on its head. Do you remember what the lawyer's question originally was? The lawyer had asked him, who is my neighbor? Jesus like, doesn't even treat that. The assumption is everyone's your neighbor. He, he flips the question on. And by the time we get to the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan, what is Jesus asking the man? You tell me which one of these men was a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. The question is not so much who is my neighbor. No, duh, it's everybody. The question is, are you being a good neighbor yourself for suffering men and women around you? Are you yourself marked by the kind of love that I am calling my disciples to? A kind of love that is marked by universal benevolence, generosity, and sacrifice. Jesus is telling us here what it looks like to be one who obeys the second great commandment. So let me now rehearse the five points for you before we consider a few implications and then we'll be done. Number one, Jesus' command to love neighbor is not novel, but is contained in the Old Testament. Number two, the command to love one's neighbor both summarizes and fulfills all the law's requirements concerning our duty to our fellow human beings. Number three, Jesus' command to love God and neighbor situates love as the principal motivation for all true obedience. Number four, no biblical command exceeds these two commandments in terms of greatness and significance. And number five, the command to love one's neighbor requires that our conduct toward our neighbors be characterized by love, kindness, and generosity. You have the basic points that we've derived from these major texts. Uh, in the minutes that remain, I would like to share four implications from this command for our lives as Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay, what does this mean for me? Obviously a big deal. It's a lot that these writers have said, both in Leviticus, Romans, and then Jesus himself. So what does it mean for us if we're to fulfill the second great commandment? I have four implications. Number one, in the language of the Bible, it would be almost impossible to give this command a place of greater priority in the Christian life. Okay, fairly familiar with the Bible. Many of you are very familiar with the Bible. You tell me. In the language the Bible typically uses to signal to us, hey, this is really important. In the language of the Bible, it would be almost impossible to give this command a place of greater priority in the Christian life. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am Lord. All the commandments summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, love for God, love for neighbor, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. 
There is no other commandment greater than these, the Lord says. As disciples of Jesus, we should recognize that this is one of the two most important commands He ever gave us. That statement I just made is the only proper conclusion to what we've seen in these passages. I am not stretching these texts when I say, among the commandments that Jesus has given us, of which there are many, nothing rises higher in terms of importance than the commands to love God and love neighbor. What's the implication for us? Each of us should ask ourselves, do I regard this command? I'm focusing now on the second of the two commandments. Do I regard this command to love my neighbor as myself as one of the most important directives my Lord has given me? Do I view this as one of the chief hallmarks of what it means to be a Christian at all? Brother, sister, whatever your scale of priorities in terms of how you live your life, what you give your time to, what you think is important, the call to love your neighbor as yourself should be near the top of the list. Because that's just the first very basic point. This could hardly be more important to Jesus. Okay, now second implication. The second great commandment requires that literally no one may fall outside the pale of Christian love. The second great commandment requires that literally no one may fall outside the pale of Christian love. And some cynic says, what about Satan? Okay, I'm not talking about demons, okay? People. There are no people that fall outside the pale of Christian love. Now it is true that Christians should show a special kind of love to the household of faith. This is a biblical idea. The Bible just accepts it as a kind of truism. That there should be among the family of God sort of greater, fuller, deeper, more frequent expressions of love among the family of God than, say, the love that we might show to those outside the community of faith. You understand that, right? Uh, let us do good to all, Galatians 6, especially those who are of the household of faith. In 1 John, the priority of loving your brothers and sisters in the community of faith is like the big deal. It's one of the foremost signs that you yourself are a child of God. You love those others who have been born of God. We in the community of faith have put upon us special entailments and responsibilities and burdens to care in a special way, an increased way, a heightened way, for those within the church family. Uh, Jesus will judge us, we're told in Matthew 25. What, is, what does he say there when he's dividing the sheep and the goats? He talks about clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, and oftentimes people think that's the pretext for like benevolence ministry to lost people in the community. That's not what's emphasized. Jesus says, insofar as you did this to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. So let's just get this straight in our minds. There is a basic priority to our love. We are to love those within the household of faith especially. Which makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus says a new commandment I give you, John 13, that you uh, love one another as I have loved you and so prove to be my disciples. Like this will show the world what Christianity is and does. How it lives and breathes. What does the Christian community look like? Well, they all love one another. See how they care for one another. See how they love one another. But there can be an overreaction to this truth. Or I should say a distortion of it. And that is to believe that love is not owed to anyone beyond the Christian community. And friends, I hope you know this. That is patently false and completely insupportable by the Bible. Well, as long as I love my brothers and sisters in the church uh, and, and maybe my family, uh, that's sort of the extent of things. Now, the second great commandment requires that literally everyone come within the purview of our love. Christians are to be universally loving people. When, when the good Samaritan stops to help the bleeding man, he didn't stop to say, now are you a church member? Hang on, I got four spiritual laws for you before uh, uh, I give you a band-aid and take you to the innkeeper's house. He doesn't do that. 
We saw even in the Old Testament community, they were to show the same kind of love to the strangers who are among them. Literally, treat the stranger among you as a native. Love them. Your love should extend to them also. So the implication for us, brothers and sisters, is that we will not meet anyone this week that does not fall within the purview of our love. You will not meet anyone ever that does not fall within the purview of your love. The second great commandment requires that literally no one may fall outside the pale of Christian love. And Jesus goes as far as saying the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, that we're to love our enemies. There's just no one we can imagine that is not owed love from Christian people. This is to be the hallmark of who we are. We love everyone universally. I'm not saying that every relationship then looks the same and the entailments of that love is the same in every situation. I'm just saying every single person is to be the object of our love. So I ask, do you love your president and your vice president? Uh, do you love members of the LGBTQ community? Do you love that man or woman in your orbit acting out in such a flagrantly wicked way? Would your attitude toward them and the conduct that proceeds from your attitude reflect the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to? Would it be evident in your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, wherever you you know, eat, work, and play, that your posture toward all the people you come into contact with is one of universal love, universal benevolence, universal charity. There's a great, great quote I have here from Spurgeon. It's rather long. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. His, his basic illustration is this. He's arguing the same point. The Christian love is to be universal. It has no bounds. We're to be loving to literally everybody. And he says, he says it's like... A, the Lord drops the, the rock of redemption in, in, in the pool of the human heart, and ripples start to go, right? You know? And he says, you know, the first ripple is, is maybe to our family, because if you don't care for your family, you're worse than an infidel. And then it goes out to embrace the church family, and then it goes to the other ends of the lake. Come, this is everybody. Well, that might be a helpful illustration to think of. There might be priorities in terms of our love, there might be certain entailments upon how love looks in certain situations and in certain relationships. But don't mistake this, brothers and sisters. What Jesus is calling us to is universal love for every fellow creature. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Third implication. The second great commandment requires that the Lord's disciples exhibit universal kindness, benevolence, and generosity toward all. I'm emphasizing now here what this love looks like in practice. The second great commandment requires that the Lord's disciples exhibit. It, it will not be acceptable to say, well, I love them in my heart. We're called to exhibit universal kindness, benevolence, and generosity toward all. Love like that of the Good Samaritan shown to the wounded man should shine through the Christian character. That should be commonplace among us in our posture toward our fellow men and women. It should be one of the distinctive hallmarks of the Lord's people. We as Christians, by definition, are the people who love. We're the people who care. We're the people who help. Like that is the trajectory set by Jesus teaching for his disciples. Those who know this Jesus and follow this Jesus, well, they're universally loving. And that love comes to expression in benevolence and charity and generosity and sacrifice for my fellow creatures. The Christians of old were known this way. It was love for neighbor that motivated Christians to rescue unwanted infants that were left on infanticide walls to be exposed to the elements. Can you even imagine? Uh, uh, oh, it appears the baby's a girl. We'll, we'll take it to the wall. We don't want it. They'd leave infants out there to 
die of exposure. This is legal. And it was the Christians who went and collected them, rescued them, brought them into their homes. It was love for neighbor that moved Christians to found the first hospitals to provide free health care for the sick in their cities. When leprosy or the plague or famine ravaged the city, there were the Christians to help, motivated by love for neighbor. It was love for neighbor that moved Basil of Caesarea to set up all kinds of social ministries and systems of social aid in his community. It was love for neighbor that motivated Martin Luther to care for the hungry citizens of Wittenberg. It was love that moved John Calvin to develop mechanisms to care for the poor of Geneva. It was love that moved Christians in the evangelical awakenings to found orphanages and ragged schools and almshouses and charities for clothing the naked and feeding the hungry. It was love that moved William Wilberforce to toil and labor and fight to end the slave trade in Britain and to free African slaves. It was love for neighbor that motivated the modern missions movement. It is love for neighbor that moves millions of Christians to flood the adoption agencies in this country. It is love for neighbor that leads Christians to advocate for the unborn. It leads them to volunteer at crisis pregnancy centers to help needy moms. It is love for neighbor that leads Christians to show hospitality and lodge strangers in their home. And love for neighbor that sends Christians on medical mission trips and fuels the largesse of the Lord's people to give to countless benevolent causes and charitable work around the globe. It's love for neighbor that sends Christians into prisons to minister to the despised and forgotten of society, into nursing homes to sit with the old and infirm, into classrooms to tutor and mentor students. It is love for neighbor that sends believers into the eye of the storm to relieve traumatized communities in the wake of tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis. It was Christian love for neighbor that led to the founding of most of the nonprofits in Winston-Salem. It was love for neighbor that led the saints of Northwest Baptist Church, the church that gave us this building, to develop a food pantry to feed the hungry in Winston-Salem, which is still in operation today. It was a function of love for neighbor that let us occupy this space for so many months and eventually to give it to us. It is love for neighbor that led Randy and Paula Borton and the hundreds of helpers alongside them over the years to serve needy women in crisis through Solus Christus. Brothers and sisters, the second great commandment requires that the Lord's disciples exhibit universal kindness, benevolence, and generosity on behalf of all. If we are to be like our Lord, we will be universally known as the people who love, the people who care, the people who help. Charles Spurgeon, you've heard me offer this quote before. To me, a follower of Jesus means a friend of man. A Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace. Wide as the reign of sorrow is the stretch of his love. And where he cannot help, he pities still. A friend introduced me to this delightful quote from William Wilberforce. If to be feelingly alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures and to be warmed with the desire of relieving their distresses is to be a fanatic, I am one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large. Are you touched with the feeling of the broken fragments of fallen humanity all around you? William Wilberforce says, sign me up for that. You want to call me a fanatic? That's fine. Friends, this is not wokeness. This isn't a social gospel. This isn't the slide to theological liberalism. This isn't the church carrying the water for the Democratic Party. We have to find a better way of responding to error than vacating the Lord's commands of their plain and obvious meaning. If you are passionate about helping needy people in this world, you are not someone given to social gospel. You're someone hopefully seeking to follow the plain commands of Jesus. This is basic Christian discipleship. 
This is those who love the Master doing as He has called us to do. He calls us to love our fellow human beings. To love them even as ourselves. And that love cannot remain theoretical or hypothetical. It should become practical and experiential. And it should manifest itself in thousands upon thousands upon millions of practical acts of Christian kindness carried out with no expectation of recompense, sometimes not even accompanied with a gospel presentation. Of course, if you could tell them the gospel to do that, especially do that. Friends, how much more potent the witness of the Lord's people would be if we were known universally as those who are loving to everyone we encounter. I couldn't remember as a kid being in a situation once, I was maybe 10 or 11, and I was a Christian at this point, and I can remember hearing a couple of men having a kind of culture war conversation and talking about liberals and all of that and talking about you know, uh, you know, socialism and social programs and things like that and, you know, welfare and all this. And I'm not a big advocate for the welfare state, okay? That's not what this sermon is about. But there were comments made that seemed so prejudiced against needy people. And there were comments made that were so, like, like, heartless. Like, that's their problem if they're going to behave that way. Well, true, it is their problem. But I remember thinking, isn't there something we're supposed to do about this? Like, like isn't there such an instinct in us to like love them, care about them, have concern for their suffering, even if that suffering is a result of their own sinful, rebellious actions? And I remember thinking, as I wanted to be a preacher, I said, um, one day I will preach a sermon on about how Christians are supposed to be nice. That was the thesis. Christians must be nice. At a 10-year-old vocabulary, kids here, if you have the instinct like Christians should be nice, you're right. You're right. We should be the nicest people in the world. We should be universally benevolent and kind and generous, loving, eager to help. There was a pastor, maybe you heard this story in Texas, this was about a year ago now, and um, he got run over by uh, uh, like a Mack truck. And I didn't know him personally. I, I know a lot of people who knew him personally. And there was this news that he, he was run over by a Mack truck and it was heartbreaking and so many mourned his death. And then more details came out. Uh, there was a stranded motorist on the side of the road uh, who was stuck in a car that had rolled over and it ended up kind of on the side of the road. And he was, he was lying inside the car with his feet hanging out here to pull the person to safety. And that's how he died. I thought, that is a wonderful testimony to who we ought to be as Christians. Died in the act of being a good Samaritan. Caring for suffering people around us. If this command means anything at all, it is that we should be universally kind and benevolent and loving toward our fellow creatures. Fourth and final point, and some of you have been waiting for this. I've not forgotten it. There is no greater fulfillment of this commandment than to tell lost men and women of the forgiveness and salvation found in Jesus Christ. There is no greater fulfillment of this commandment than to tell lost men and women of the forgiveness and salvation found in Jesus Christ. Love has not been completed if you've given them a loaf of bread. And it's not yet been perfected if you built the well in Africa. We as Christians want to alleviate all human suffering wherever we find it, especially eternal suffering in hell forever. And maybe this is a corrective for some of us. We have no problem with signing up for the soup kitchen, building the well in Africa. Uh, we like as Christians actually being known for our generosity and largesse. But I don't really want to have to share the gospel with them. Friend, we're against all forms of human suffering. But so what if you fill someone's belly for 60 years and they starve in hell for all eternity? So, so what if you, you know, seek to provide tutoring to a student for a semester 
but never tell him about how he can be saved from his sins and how he can inherit paradise forever with God. We may not think we have loved our neighbor aright if we haven't told them that they are in danger because of their sin and that they are answerable to God, that he is coming again to judge the world. But there is a Redeemer, God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to repentance, who calls us to trust in the blood shed for us on the cross that we will be saved. Tell them, as Pastor Ben exhorted us, of the unspeakable mercy of God. The greatest course that love can take is to give the gospel to them, to tell them how they may be saved, how they may be changed, how they may inherit everlasting life. Oh, may the Lord help us to realize all the entailments, all the legitimate entailments of this glorious command. Let's not be a church that gets nervous when people start talking about love for a neighbor. Rather, let's embrace as one of the hallmarks of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love the Lord Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our Master, our Teacher. And as those, many of us here, who have been called into His discipleship, have been called to follow Him, have been brought into saving union with Him, who have come under the purview of His saving Lordship, we pray that You would enable us to be faithful to the commands of our Master. We want to be faithful disciples. We want to be fruitful disciples. Would you help us, Father? Uh, we want to be faithful, particularly to the commands and the teachings that our Savior gave us. And among them we recognize these great commands to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. To love our neighbors as ourselves. Would you show us, Father, through your word and by your spirit, how we can do this? We want to be faithful. Help us to be faithful. We pray that you would help all your churches, that you would help all your people, that you would help this particular local church. So work grace within us that we would be universally known as loving people. That we would be known as those full of grace and mercy and compassion. Generosity, sacrifice, kindness. May these things mark us as your people. Lord, we want to live in this way because you've called us to this. But also, Father, because you have furnished us with the most blessed example. In your Son, the Lord Jesus, who sacrificed himself for us, who loved us to the end, who gave himself for our good. We pray, Father, that we would follow in His train. That we would be a people zealous for good works. That we would be those who do good to all. That we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And may that come to expression often, often. And being able to speak the words of eternal life to people. To tell them how they can be saved. To tell them how they can be rescued. To tell them how they can be delivered from suffering forever. Through what our Lord has done. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.